Good morning. Good morning. Uh, this is my first time back in physical church since. I feel like there should be a special offering that I should be making for that. So, um, it's, it's good to be back. So um, I was sharing with Pastor Scott that for me, um, who can be very introverted, it's really super comfortable being at home and being with God and being in the Word and being, yes. and being still. It was almost like a great big Sabbath. Um, so, that being said, I'm also, at the same time, excited to see, not what I have to say today, because that, just set that aside, I'm excited to see what God has to say. Um, I'm one of those people, and we're going to pray this way in just a minute, but I'm one of those people that believes that God does, in fact, have a word for us from his word that meets us in the very season and reason that we're at for a specific point in time to move us, to convict us, to change us, to shape us. And so no matter how many times those of us in this room have read the Bible or read a particular passage, when we can approach it with fresh eyes and that clean heart that we just sang about, I'm convinced that God can not only meet us where we're at, but move us to where he wants us to be so that we become less like ourselves and more like Christ. Amen? So it's to that end that we uh, prepare ourselves through the word of God to receive and partake in communion today. And so let's pray and then jump into the word. Father, we thank you that you are the living God of the living word. And that, God, something happens when we meet in your presence with your word. That there is almost this divine exchange, this divine dance that takes place. It's such a holy intersection. Your presence and your word coming together to meet us. And so we pray, God, this morning that you would meet us right where we're at, each one of us and that you would move us in some particular way. Father, for the next half hour, we, we choose with our free will to set down those things that have been bothering us, worrying us, frustrating us, concerning us, and instead we fix our gaze upon you. Will you meet us and move us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We preach Christ in Him crucified. And as today's Communion Sunday, it's appropriate to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus and what it has accomplished for all those who follow Him, for us, for you and me gathered in this room today. 
And although there are so many different aspects and elements of the sacrifice of Jesus that we could consider, this could be a theme that would go on for probably decades. Today, we will consider in this short period of time three aspects of the sacrifice of Jesus using as our primary text Hebrews chapter 10, parts of verses 1 through 18 as our primary source. And the three aspects that we want to consider today are first, the singularity of the sacrifice. Second, the sovereignty of the sacrifice. And third, the sufficiency of the sacrifice. And as we prayerfully prepare to enter the passage in Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18, we would do well to remind ourselves that the author of Hebrews has been in a building pattern. It began in chapter 1, where he builds upon the Old Testament and the law, what it stipulated, what it provided under the previous covenants. And so he had been building upon that with what Jesus had constructed in terms of something better, something new, something superior. According to Benjamin Warfold, Abraham, Moses, Melchizedek, the tabernacle, the high priest, the animal sacrifices, all of this pointed toward a greater truth than themselves. If the Old Testament is a well-furnished room, cloaked in shadows, then the New Testament flips on the lights. So let's read parts of this passage. I'm old school, so I bring a book. You can use your phone, whatever you have. Uh, But we're going to open up to Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm going to read first verses 1 through 4, then we're going to skip a chunk, and then drop down to Hebrews verses 9 through 18 in chapter 10. So starting in verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then if we drop down further in chapter 10 to verses 9 through 18. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. 
He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is, my, is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins in their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You ever read God's word and at the end of a passage, just say amen? (laughs) This is one of those passages. That, that section of, of Hebrews prepares us so beautifully, so perfectly for communion. And it begins by looking at the singularity of the sacrifice. According to this text that we just read, notably in verse 12, Christ offered once for all a single sacrifice. No other sacrifice was needed. No other sacrifice would ever be needed after that. That one sacrifice replaced the ongoing sacrifices offered under the Levitical priesthood, operating under the law. The repeated sacrifices, especially the sin offerings, could at best only temporarily cover sin. Come on. You remember before Christ, don't you? When we would try to cover sin, only to find it peering its way out, working its way under the best coverings we could create in our minds, our wild imaginations, our denials. But then Christ came. One sacrifice. Done. We don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to deny anymore. 
We don't have to tell ourselves lies. We don't have to be false and fake in front of one another. We can be real and authentic people in the body of Christ because of this singular sacrifice that did away with sin. It did more than cover it. He took it all. This temporary covering under the Old Testament, it would never be a full and final payment for sin. The blood shed by animals at the altar burnt offering, it wasn't a permanent remedy, which is why it had to be done all the time. The stories of the blood loomed large in the Old Testament, from the Passover to Leviticus to the feasts. And the Hebrew people, maybe even the hearers of this book called Hebrews, they would be keenly aware of that blood. But then came the blood of Jesus. His blood shed once for the remission of sins. His sacrifice, once for all, upon the cross, it was payment in full for sin. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 6.14 that he will glory in the cross of Christ. Now that's one to go back and meditate on, isn't it? Lord, show us what it means to glory in the cross of Christ. Maybe today he'll give us a a little crack in the window to what that means, to glory in that cross. There was no longer a need for sacrifices and the shedding of the blood of animals after the blood which flowed from Emmanuel's veins completely and permanently and irrevocably paid for sin. There was an aloneness, a singleness to this sacrifice. It was a single act by a single man with a single sacrifice that was sin's solution. And let's not miss the oneness, the singularity of this act, which sets every one of us who follows Christ, what it does is it sets us free. This single sacrifice by this single man who was God, the Son of God and the Son of Man, this single sacrifice sets us free. All we have to do is turn to our neighbor and say, will somebody help me get the grave clothes off? Because a lot of us are walking around resurrected but with grave clothes still on us. And Jesus himself said, will will y'all help him take the grave clothes off? 
as if he was saying, I've done enough, I'm tired, I'm going to go take a break. That sacrifice sets us free. It's a single sacrifice. It's done. It's done. According to John's gospel, in John 19, chapter 19, verses 17 through 20, Jesus carried his own cross, an act of utter humiliation and shame. He suffered alone. He carried his cross alone. He was crucified alone. I know there were other people around. He was alone in the suffering. He was alone in the sacrifice for us. Paul knew from his own encounter with the Lord that it was Jesus Christ crucified which had gained the pardon of Paul's sins and the salvation of his soul. That one single act of Jesus had gained Paul everything. It had changed Paul in every way imaginable, starting with his name being changed and then his nature and then his character, and then his identity, and then his words. That one single act, that shed blood, it it did and it does the same for us today. I was so glad to hear the songs that we sang during worship because I thought, wow, yeah, right? The oldies and the goodies. Not the oldies, but the goodies. The oldies and the goodies. Bring it out, Dan, every single time. Because all week long as I was preparing for this message, I would sing over and over again. And I'd, you know, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, but preferably not around other people. But to God, it's, it's great. I just kept singing, What can wash Away my sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Right? Right, the blood. We sing about the blood. We plead the blood. Again, an oldie and very effective. Pleading the blood works. Which leads us to the second aspect of this sacrifice we want to consider, which is the sovereignty of it, which might sound a little odd. But if we look at Hebrews chapter 9, if you go back in the text just a little bit, not chapter 9 verse 26, we will see that Jesus both brought the sacrifice and he was the sacrifice. He was both a priest and a king. He was a king. And so this sacrifice was not only singular, it's sovereign. It has this 
connotation of sovereignty attached to it that I think sometimes we miss in communion moments. The sovereignty of King Jesus. It was a king who was crucified. Our king who went to the cross. We can know this by returning again to John's gospel in chapter 18, verse 37, and reading Pilate's questioning of Jesus. Are you a king? Jesus responds, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And at that time, not that it's changed much, but at that time, titles were a reflection of power and authority. And those in power, as we read throughout the gospel accounts, they were threatened by this Jesus, the one claiming to be Messiah. Subsequently, in John 19, Pilate instructed the inscription of the charges against Jesus be nailed directly to the cross, not carried by someone leading in front of Jesus. No, no, nailed right to the cross itself so everyone could see it. The charge was treason, and the inscription read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Everybody would be able to read it. Everyone would know. And even when the own, his own Roman soldiers tried to advise Pilate to change the, the wording, he's like, no, what I've written, I've written. He wouldn't back down. He was, he was done. And the claim, of course, was true. Jesus was the king. He was not just the king of the Jews. He was the king of kings. He was the king of the entire world. He was the king. He is the king. He shall be the king. He shall always be the king. And nothing, stuff that's going on today, that does not remove Jesus off the throne of his kingdom for one second. It doesn't cause the kingdom of God to teeter, to topple, to fall over, to doubt, to question. Nothing that's happening is surprising God. And nothing is about to remove Jesus from being king. He operates out of his kingship. It's just the way he goes about being a king is so different than the way people think. His eyes saw suffering, and he was compassionate. His eyes saw sickness, and he brought healing. His eyes saw loneliness, and he spent time He spent time with people nobody else wanted to spend time with. That's our king. That's our Jesus. Willing to meet you 
where you are right now. He was crucified royalty. And it brings us to the third and final point in considering this sacrifice, which is the sufficiency, right? We sing that, don't we? All sufficient sacrifice, right? Yeah. The sacrifice of Jesus is a sufficient one. As at his last, Jesus groaned, what words? It is finished. In modern day vernacular, there's probably a paraphrased version of the Bible floating around out there somewhere that says, mission accomplished. (laughs) And in Hebrews 10, 12, I don't know if you caught this at the first reading of the text, but in Hebrews 10, 12, did you notice, did anybody catch this? Jesus sat down. He sat down in contrast to the priests in the priesthood. They're on their feet all day long. No disrespect, but at the slaughterhouse. You know what I mean? It was just awful. When you think about the blood that was shed and the animals being brought in, it was they were always on their feet performing their tasks of the priesthood, meaning this job never was ending. It kept going, but the single act by the single man of the single sacrifice that was sin's solution, when it was done, when the blood was shed from the cross of Christ, he sat down at the right hand of the Father saying, it's done. It's finished. There's a solution to sin. I mean, if that doesn't give us cause to be thankful and praiseworthy people, I don't know what does. We have in the body and blood of Jesus our hope, our salvation, our sanctification. We have peace. We have forgiveness We have wholeness, that Hebrew word shalom, that I love that word, right? Which is wholeness. We have rescue. We have cleansing of our conscience. And if you also note in the reading of this chapter 10 in Hebrews, the repeated use of for all time and once for all. Now, I'm one of those word nerds. If I can just take just a brief pause and go over here for a sec. I'm one of those word nerds. I love the Bible. And I make no apologies for it. God has spoken to me most often through his word. That's our communication line. Occasionally there are other methods. Usually it's right through this. And so when I read a passage, I I have 
study Bibles spread out on the table, and I have highlighters all over the place, and journals and notebooks, and, and I'm like, you know, woo, I'm in my happy place. And I, quite frankly, I don't want to leave. And he, there's this dance. I alluded to it, I think, in the prayer. There's this, I believe that there's this sacred divine dance that takes place when the God of the word takes the word and speaks to us and changes us. Now, and I don't know what that dance looks like, but it's, uh, it's, it's Wow. The word draws us closer to God. It gives us insight into who God is and what God does. Conversely, just as the word can draw us to God, God can draw us to the word. Have you ever been in prayer and out of nowhere a scripture comes to your mind and you're like, or is it just me? And then you're so excited you get up, I mean, a lot of times I'm in my quiet place do when this stuff happens. You get up and you run and you grab one of your Bibles or whatever, right? And you, and you dig in. You dig in because you want to find what is it that God has to say. That's the divine dance we're talking about. The word brings us closer to God, and God brings us closer to the word. And who, who is the ultimate author of the word of God? God. It's all God-inspired, written for our benefit. We'll leave it at that. Back on the, back on the path. The repeated use of those phrases for all time and once for all are our scriptural proofs that the Lord and King's sacrifice was and remains sufficient. It was also foreordained. Every aspect of Jesus' suffering and death was planned from eternity. God knew. The work of the cross is a finished work. And it allows us to find ourselves complete in him, according to Colossians 2.10. Complete in him. Now the implications of these three aspects of the sacrifice of Jesus, what do they do? What are the implications of this passage as we consider them? Quite frankly, it takes the pressure off It takes the pressure off of us. It relieves us of the need to feel like we have to earn something or do something or solve the sin problem ourselves, like, you know, enter a behavior modification program. Transformation happens by the hand of God, the power of the Holy Spirit and the hand of God operating in our lives. And my experience is I did not get completely transformed overnight. My transformation and sanctification process has been one baby step at a time. Because God knows that's about how much I can handle. But it takes the pressure off and it allows us to rest 
When we recognize that work as a finished work, we can rest, take our place in that finished work, and yes, glory in the cross of Christ. Now I watched the implications of the sacrifice of Jesus play out in front of me in living color back in 2000, and I think it was 2014. I was having a conversation with this woman, Darley, in a little town called Gatesville, Texas. Darley occupies a cell on death row there. And I met her for the first time. I've met her several times. So I met her for the first time, I think it was 2014. And so as I pulled up a chair in this dark section of the building, as I pulled up a chair and leaned in near the cell bars, Darley did the same. She'd been incarcerated since 1997 for capital crime. And facing notification that she could face execution by the state at any time. Darley was calm and almost relaxed. We'd, we'd call that today, she was chill, right? I guess. I was, I was more nervous than she was. She simply told me she knew who she was, whose she was. She knew she, she, knew she was forgiven. She knew where she was going. In fact, in Texas, in that death row unit, they don't call it death row, they call it life row. And when we prayed this morning and sang this morning about desperation, I'm convinced, and I'm sure 15 years of prison ministry has affected me and affected my point of view, but I'm convinced God loves desperation. When we're desperate, he shows up. And he does something. And he had done it with Darley. She had a life-changing encounter with the living God of the living word. And it had changed her outlook. It changed her actions, her words, her demeanor, her posture. It changed everything about her. She'd found Christ and she clung on to him as both her savior and her king. And she was going to serve him out of that eight by five cell for all the days of her life. This woman in white had understood the mystery of the gospel. And none other than Jesus himself had established his kingdom in her heart. And I could see it. She encouraged me. She ministered to me. She's still there. And she's still living a faith-filled life instead of just waiting for death. She was truly free. And this is what awaits us. 
to go beyond the borders of our own limits and dare to ask God for more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that everything that's been spoken of you this morning is sealed into each person's spirit by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, anything not of you would just be washed away and no one would ever remember it again. Father, I pray that this week each of us would have a life-changing experience with you, the living God of the living word, that we would have that encounter and it would change us, it would shape us, that it would be engraved on our hearts and that you would do for us what you did for Darley, that you would come and establish your kingdom in our hearts. Thank you for your word of truth, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.